Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Now, just because it's tailor-made clothing does not mean it is out of your price range. You walk into Leon Tailoring, you'll see a great wide selection of clothes that are actually quite reasonable and quite affordable and very comparable to what you pay at the big box stores. It's just the fact that it's just better clothes that last longer. So don't let the tailoring part fool you. Swing on by Leon Tailoring and see what I'm talking about. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware and downtown Indianapolis. That's Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware and downtown Indianapolis. Well, the economy is a big deal these days, and so we're checking to find out exactly how is the economy actually doing. So we're talking to a couple of our economic friends. This conversation, we talked to our good friend Mike Hicks, uh, economist at Ball State University. So Michael, my friend, thank you very much for being with us. Always good to chat with you, sir. Yeah, it's an honor to be with you again. Uh, so help us out here. How is the economy actually doing? Is it good? Is it bad? Or is it somewhere in between? Uh, it's always somewhere in between. Uh, so, uh, you know, right now we're looking at very tight labor markets. As any employer knows, it's very difficult to pick up workers. Um, and that the expansion is at least somewhat hampered by the availability of, uh, of folks to work. That's caused by a couple of reasons. One is the CARES Act and the Recovery Act just lined most people's pockets with additional cash. So we're buying RVs and vacation homes and going on vacation. That gives us a lot of demand across the marketplace for goods and services. And at the same time, COVID weighs on employment numbers. Um, we've lost 23,000 Hoosiers. Four or 5,000 of those are working-age adults. And, and at the same time, I think there's still pressure on a lot of families to find daycare and other things that would allow them to slip back into the labor market. So if, if you're feeling inflationary pain, try finding some place to park your two-year-old. Uh, it's really difficult now. So, you know, I think overall, uh, big demand for goods are up, uh, demand for services are up. At the same time, we're feeling that inevitability of inflation coming back to play that's biting us in the in the pocketbook and at the pump and everywhere that it does. Uh, what's causing this inflation, do you think? Well, so two parts. The first part is the old supply chain constraint. Just you know, we over the last summer hit, you know, just our maximum inflation adjusted manufacturing output in U.S. history. So we made a lot of stuff last year. People bought it. Uh, just the example that I have for RVs, we went from 400,000 in 2019 to 603,000 in 2021. So just, you know, a 50% increase in the sale of RVs, roughly. So people are buying stuff. We also saw big increases in imports. So it made it very difficult. Uh, with record imports and record manufacturing production to get things to the shelf, to the dealership. Uh, and that caused prices to rise. When you when you drive by an empty dealership, you know the the dealer there for cars or RVs isn't interested in, in, in dealing down prices. Um, at the same time, that excess demand for goods, heavily fueled by government spending to get us out of the the pandemic recession, which was just horrid. Remember that was 18 months, 20, 24 months ago now. Um, led to old-fashioned, old-timey 1970s uh, uh, inflation where we just saw too much money chasing too few goods. And I think the supply chain problem is mostly done in a few commodities or a few areas. It's not yet. It's still hard to find new cars that are heavily reliant on imported uh, microchips and the like. But we're now dealing with the old 
uh, 1970-style inflation where we just have too much money out there chasing too many goods, and that's where we're at right now, and that's a Federal Reserve problem. Uh, speaking of 1970s, that talked to you about gas prices as well. Uh, what's, the, what's the logic and rationale for gas prices being so high? Because obviously, uh, folks would point to a couple years ago where gas was two bucks, like, yeah, but also nobody was driving because we're all basically you know, sort of staying home. Yeah, this is just raw supply and demand. And, and as, as scary as it is to see the prices at the pump in inflation-adjusted terms, or you know, adjusting for our income inflation, for example, we're still below where we were back in 2008, just before the crash. And so whenever you see high gas prices, it's usually because you have a tight economy, a lot of people moving goods, a lot of people wanting to buy gas. And when gas drops, as we did right after the crash of 2008 or two years ago now when we're in the midst of a pandemic, that's usually bad times. So we're in good times now. Gas prices are going up. That will slow down the economy as fewer of us are willing to pay those shipping charges on the Amazon products that we thought were so so easy to do a year ago or are taking fewer vacations or are not able to spend as much at the uh, grocery store or the restaurant because of the higher gas prices. Our guest on the program today is our good friend Mike Hicks. Mike is is a is a economist at Ball State University, and so we're just kind of talking about the economy and just trying to get our arms around what exactly uh, is going on. Uh, Mike, also uh, with gas prices, obviously you can't talk about gas prices without talking about the situation in Ukraine and Russia and the whole nine yards. I want to say uh, the U.S. only imports like eight percent of its gas from the from the from the, from, from the former Soviet Union. Uh, so is Russia really responsible for our high gas prices? It's certainly contributing to it, but here's how it works. We're really a net exporter of petroleum, but at the same time, just the same way we're a net exporter of food. But that doesn't mean you don't import some petroleum, you don't import some food. We we like to have different mixes for different types of fuels. We make products with petroleum at different mixes. So our dependence on Russian fuel is pretty small. The problem is this is a commodity market. So if the price goes up in Germany, which is very dependent upon Russian oil, it's going to going to come back to us. So, uh, in effect, prices here. So, the, the challenge is that Russia, uh, much of Europe is dependent upon Russian fuel in a way that, you know, nobody in Indiana is buying Russian fuel. But it affects our prices because it means that our, our folks are pumping uh, trying to get fuel to markets in Europe uh, where they can make money. It's not, for them, a national security issue. It is for the Germans, the German government. And so that wars always exacerbate uncertainty, and war in a with a oil-producing country, it would be at Kuwait, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, Venezuela or Russia are all areas of concern. And I think that's, at least in the short term, is going to keep prices from, from dropping back down. Over the long run, this is a profit opportunity for an awful lot of producers in the U.S. who are moving quickly to get pumps moving again. But quickly in pumping petroleum is several weeks to months. And that's interesting you bring that up because I want to say uh, the president said there are like lots of uh, uh, oil-producing permits uh, that are out there, but the oil companies aren't taking advantage of them. The oil companies say, no, the U.S. has been so unfriendly you know, with us and fossil fuels that we don't necessarily want to go down that road again. Uh, what, where's the real story in all that? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. The fact is that there's uh, the profit opportunities is, are causing uh, there to be a lot more both fracking and natural or uh, petroleum uh, being pulled out of the ground right now. It just takes a long time to get workers to those main camps to get the thing started, uh, you know, to get the operations rolling. Uh, Europe needs natural gas and needs fuel. 
the U.S. economy has, you know, U.S. government has has taxed the, these fossil fuels for some time, and and it, it you know, the Biden administration doesn't look like they're going to give broad relief to fossil fuels. At the same time, there's a profit opportunity there. I think it's a lot of talky talk. The fact of the matter is that their prices are high enough for petroleum firms to make a lot of money. The demand with respect to Russia problem is not going to go away. Even if Russia pulls out tomorrow, uh, there's going to be, I think everybody believes, long-term efforts to strip their ability to do this again, which means cutting their oil off eventually. But we can't do it in the middle of winter in Germany. It's cold there now, cold in Finland, and they need that that gas just to keep their pipes from freezing and from people to die. So, you know, I think we're, we're in an area where uh, the, the profit motive and good old capitalism is going to pull through to keep prices sort of dampened in the future. But this is a long run, not a short term issue with Russia. Our guest on the program today is our good friend, Mike Hicks. Mike is the economist at Ball State University. So we're talking about the economy, inflation, oil prices, the whole nine yards of uh, issues that really impact uh, folks around the kitchen table. Uh, Mike, uh, with inflation, uh, obviously, with, with a worker shortage, that means wages go up. With inflation, that means prices go up. So has inflation eaten up the eating up the the wage gains that the workers have made over the past couple of years? Yeah, great question. Yeah, it has. And so we're seeing nominal prices go up, and we're seeing uh, nominal wages going up. But if you look at the take-home pay of the average worker in Indiana, it's back to where it was in January of 2020, so pre-recession levels, the average wage. And so what that really means is that over the last three months in particular, average wages have dropped here in Indiana by, you know, not a lot, 15 cents an hour. But that what that means is that if you're an employer and you think you're paying a lot, you're trying to hire somebody back into the workforce, you think that you're you're paying them considerably more than you did two years ago simply because of the, the price tag. You're not accounting for the experience they have in cost of living. And for particularly for lower income workers, you know, for that single mom trying to get back into the workforce or a young family with child care, I think the issue is even more acute because those are the places that have really been hit with the high sticker shock uh, of workers as well. And so, you know, I think we're at a point where despite many employers thinking for the first time that they really upped wages, in fact, in inflation-adjusted terms, wages have not risen for most workers. Uh, that's interesting because you uh, recently wrote a column uh, on uh, in your uh, CBR data commentaries called it, you called it a tough two decades for the Hoosier economy. What's going on with that? Right, so we we talk an awful lot about tight labor markets. We can we we can you know chat on about the great performance of the RV industry and many bright spots in the state's economy. But the fact of the matter is that over the past two decades, the Indiana economy has performed pretty poorly. Uh, we've had you know 190,000 or 155,000 new residents. 190,000 of them moved to Indy. So I'm not that's not a mistake. You know people are moving to the urban places which look really good. So if you're driving around Indianapolis, if you're in Carmel or Fishers, boy, the economy is doing really good. You drive another 20 minutes east, not so well. And so just overall, uh, if you look at the Indiana economy, wages have been stagnant. Even in areas that we think were high performers, and the average manufacturing worker is making no more now than they did in inflation-adjusted terms in the Clinton administration. And new factory workers are actually being paid less than a new factory worker in 1998. 
And so overall, I think we're really struggling. And the causal factor in here, or at least the most obvious contributor to this problem, is that our the educational profile, the average Hoosier worker, has actually gone down over the past few years relative to the country as a whole. So instead of converging in educational attainment and income and wages, we're actually growing at a slower rate. And that's a problem if you're already well behind the nation as a whole and you're growing at a much slower rate. That means the gap between the average Hoosier's income and the average Hoosier's education is bigger now than it was a decade ago uh, between that the Hoosier and the average American. And I think that's really gives very poor prognosis for the next two decades, which are really, let's just be frank, going to be highly organized around high-skilled, highly educated workers and the growth that they are bringing to a regional or a national economy. And that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, when we talk about you know, sort of those, 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 those wages, is it the low-skilled, low-educated low wages have the issue, or is it more of those, those high-skilled wages that you just mentioned? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of both. We're seeing bifurcation of, of jobs, right? So uh, I, I hear, you know, all oh, too many kids are going to college, and, and I'm, I'll write about that in the months and weeks to come. That's just not the case. All the jobs created the past 30 years, 100% of them have gone to college graduates, 80 um, or, or people who've gone to college. 81% of, of jobs created in the past 30 years in the United States have gone to college graduates. And that doesn't mean you can't make money in the trades, but like last year in Indiana, there were at job help wanted ads for 513 plumbers, 723 electricians, and 840 carpenters. To put that in context, we had about 90,000 kids turn 18 last year. And so the demand for the trades is a very modest share of overall uh, growth, really just replacing workers that age out of the workforce. There's no big growth in the demand for plumbers or electricians, just just that they're replacing retiring workers. Where the, all the demand is coming is in college-educated workers, and that is where Indiana has actually produced fewer. Uh, we have fewer kids going off to college now than we did in 2015 and 2016, which is a huge red flag for the vibrancy and long-term viability of the Indiana economy. And again, that's not happening in, in Fishers. Fishers is doing fine. It's the rest of this, you know, the 85 counties that are not growing very robustly is really the problem. And I think that's the point I was trying to make in the column to, to point towards just the way we're thinking about education in the state and how we're funding it. It's interesting you bring up uh, the trades like you know, plumbing and carpeting and electricianing. Uh, I want to say there there was I remember reading uh, a while back there was some talk about how coding is sort of like the new trade uh, that's in you no know, IT and that sort of thing. Uh, you agree with that assessment? Yeah, right. So the the the. the there are many things that are skilled-like trades that don't require four years of college, but they're going to require a big chunk of post-secondary education. In many ways, I think about a plumber as a, you know, somebody who has a lot of post-secondary education, somebody who finished college, finished high school, could have gone to college, didn't want to. And, and does something else and goes through a couple of years. Maybe they don't have all the English classes. Maybe they don't have all the economics classes, but they, they're doing a lot of post-secondary training. And what we've done is we said, oh, you don't have to do that college post-secondary training. You can do this trade secondary training. And there's some opportunities for coding or something else 
that's not a four-year college degree, the, the always the worry that I have for that is those jobs may be very transient. We're going to see a lot of coding go away from uh, artificial intelligence. So at the end of the day, what insulates you from labor market shocks, what gives you opportunities, is really a pretty strong post-secondary education in an area that's not very technically susceptible to being automated. So something like plumbing. Uh, Mike, I just a couple minutes left here. Uh, I want to get your uh, thoughts on the, sort of the big picture, uh, not just Indiana, but uh, but America as well. It's almost sort of like we're we're almost sort of like in two, two Indianas, two Americas. One that's doing well, one with you know sort of the high wage, high tech, you know, jobs where people you know they don't like inflation, but they can still kind of deal with it. Versus those who are you know less skilled, less educated, and just uh, less likely to succeed. Yeah, that is, I think, the challenge of our time is this, I call it bifurcation of labor markets. We're seeing growth at the very low end, job availability at the low end, and a lot of demand at the high end. It's that middle range that's sort of missing out, and that means families that are really struggling with inflation and other families that hardly even notice it. And exactly the example you gave, the way to bridge some of that is labor markets that have more middle-skilled people in them. Right, that's a big portion of the problem. And the other thing is to just to be very honest about where who are the people who aren't going to college? Who are the the kids that were going to college? What's the demographics of the kids who were going to college in 2015 and are not now? And the fact is, it comes in big numbers amongst our poor residents of the state, and though that's where the human capital is being left on the table, and I think ultimately causing places and people to be left behind while other folks are, are zooming forward in the economy. And, and when you see places diverge and you see people diverge, you see a lot of animosity built up in an already uh, you know, divided country. All right. Well, our guest on the program today has been our good friend, Mike Hicks. Mike is an economist at Ball State University. Uh, Mike, my friend, thank you very much for being with us and help us get our conversation started. Always good to talk to you, old friend. Good to chat with you. Bye-bye. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.